one and we are recording yet again with mr nick hudson and uh i i messaged him at like three in the morning and i was like hey make sure you have a drink tomorrow because i'm gonna drink with you and he has been a, a saint enough to oblige me and so um this is cheers to panda and uh cheers to the eventual arrest of anthony Fauci, which who knows if we'll ever live to see that but before we get into it, Mr. Hudson, please introduce yourself for all the new listeners who haven't seen either of our, I believe we've done two episodes before this. Please introduce yourself for that. It's getting faster and faster. It is. How are you, Tommy? I'm doing very good. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm Nick Hudson, chairman of an organization called Panda, which uh, was originally a portmanteau for uh, pandemics, data and analytics. We set up in South Africa in May of 2020, right at the beginning of all this absolute insanity, concerned at at the prospect of uh, developing countries following the developed world in their insane project of lockdowns in pursuit of the eradication or flattening or whatever of a supposedly new and deadly virus. Uh, worked on that project for six, seven months um, and eventually expanded internationally when we realized that nothing that was being done in South Africa was being done on the cord of uh, any of our local politicians or public health people. They were all just playing the roles that were assigned to them by organizations outside of the country. And Panda's now been around the whole way through all of this, loads of material articles on every aspect of the pandemic, uh, a huge complement of people involved in producing those webinars, presentations, podcasts, you name it. And we keep fighting the fight, winning our little battles, gradually, uh, I think, overcoming the insanity and restoring some common sense and wisdom to the world. Slowly but surely, and it's a, a fantastic Twitter follow. I'll put that in the description as well as uh, Yale's websites and all the other good links. Um, so currently, I would say in the news, and for all future listeners, today is Thursday, June 23rd, 2022, at 4 or 5 p.m. Eastern time. Your thoughts on the, I guess, the clearance, at least in the United States, for the COVID vaccine for children under five years old. is Will the insanity end, or is it just becoming more and more apparent that there is no domestic decentralized decision-making process that it is indeed a super, it all comes from supranational organizations like the WHO, like Davos, like Bilderberg. Is there, is there at any point, should we, should we stop looking for the rationality to return and just understand that the entire situation is just insane? Well, there never was rationality at the FDA and the approval of the vaccine for that tender age group uh, was a disgrace. There was nothing in the study to support approving it, yet 21 out of 21 of the panelists supported the, the approval of emergency use authorization for vaccinating six-month-olds. I mean, what a disgrace. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the, there is no risk in that group. There's no risk to under-70s who are healthy. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely unnecessary to be administering a, a product that has such high adverse events rates and about which we know so little because they skipped so many 
uh, key steps in the process of authorizing this uh, therapy. Um, it's it's really just absolute hysteria, mania, uh, on the account of people who don't know what's going on and agenda playing on the people on the account of the people who do. So no, uh, that 21 to zero vote can only happen in an organization that wasn't sane in the first place, an organization that's beholden to outside influences, infiltrated, stocked with, um, any number of categories of villains, villains, miscreants, um, and village idiots. You're not talking about a sensible organization. So no, don't look for any sanity to return there, but that's, it's not all bad news, Tommy. Um, in fact, it's not even, I don't even think it's majority bad news at the moment. Uh, the, the, the establishment is, uh, terrified and starting to panic and do stupid things and retreat. And it's, uh, I think it's coming apart for, for the architects of this whole story. Well, you, you can't just tease me like that. You got to sh- shed some light on it. What, what, what's the reason for, for, for optimism? What's the silver lining in all of this? Because I am a, I am a, a, a nauseatingly optimistic person. A lot of people close to me say it will be the death of me because I always try to find the silver lining in this. But you seem let's to go to certain. the let's go to the first principles. Okay. Um, <clears throat> centralization, central planning, uh, utilitarianism, the rule of the world by spreadsheet—all of that is completely bananas. And that's ultimately what these guys are trying to do. So it's a project destined to fail. It it will fail calamitously. Uh, I would say it already has. And so. Th- there is nowhere for that project to go. It will be catastrophic. Exactly how the catastrophe plays out, who swings from which lampposts, we do not know. But it's a project destined to fail. The reasons why centralized, uh, centralization and central planning do not work are well known, well understood, are not resolved by the possession of more information, or the appointment of ever more expensive commissions and supranational organizations and private supposedly philanthropic foundations is not resolved by that. The problem remains. And I've just returned from a two-week trip through the UK and Italy where I met people on our side of the fence. And there are just so many fantastic minds in our community, people who will do the exact opposite of what these central planning fools at the World Health Organization, Belinda Gates Foundation and WEF are are up to. They will participate in the world of conjecture and criticism of open science and contribute towards the creation of new knowledge. And that new knowledge will, for the the most part, be um, focused on dispensing with these centralizing idiots. It's what uh, it's what David Hoffman said, the author of um, I think he wrote The Dead Hand, but he also wrote The Billion Dollar Spy, and uh, mm. he calls it the hidden hand of uh, of tyranny, and mm. much like there's the hidden hand of the free market, right? No one decides that this is the best shoe. It's just you wear it, and you're like, man, this is the best shoe, right? This is 
the thermos I have right now. It's like a vacuum sealed thermos. There's never a commercial for it. I just know if I put ice in it, the shit's going to stay cold for like two days. He talks about the hidden hand of tyranny in that in a top-down system, a centralized system, there will always be a, a hidden hand incentive for people to either skim some off the top for themselves, which leads to corruption and thus the dissolution of the efficacy of the whole uh, system as a whole, or to defect somewhere else and ultimately you know, result in death by a thousand cuts. I kind of think that's what you're saying, is it's, it's, it's not even as much as I'd like to shit on Klaus Schwab and Dr. Fauci. It seems to be almost more of like a, it doesn't matter who's doing it. It seems like that in the universe, in the reality that we know, the idea of centralized top-down control really is just, it's destined for failure from the outset, whether it's a global vaccination program or whether it's centralized control of an economy or whatever it is. It's just, it just seems to be something that it's almost objectively, you could say it's not even good or bad. It's just, it doesn't seem to be something that succeeds and flourishes in the reality in which we find ourselves. Yeah, that, that empirical observation is accurate, but we know why as well. When, when you are dealing with complexity, it's not possible to reckon with it by deductive analytical methods to do some calculation, to even know where to start with the difficult question of what to measure, what to optimize. Forget the attempt to optimize. We don't know what, what it is that we're aiming to balance and what trade-offs we're aiming to perform. The, the set of such trade-offs is invisible to us in the face of the overwhelming complexity, which even quite small little uh, localities and regions of time and space um, challenge us with. And so, you know, in the face of that complexity, the only way to proceed is by way of evolutionary processes of idea generation, of conjecture and criticism, of, you know, uh, hypothesis and refutation, you want to do it on the margins because of the continuous threat of um, unforeseen, unintended consequences. Um, yeah, just a general threat all the time is that if you take massive steps, if you introduce large perturbations, innovations to complicated systems, you are bound to end up with results you it's not that you thought about them and didn't and didn't foresee them as being a problem. It's you had no clue. You had no idea that that kind of stuff might emerge. And so that's a reality. And it's 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 fundamental to complex systems. This is not something that's oh well, it's a problem that we've yet to solve. You know, th- this is a feature of complexity. And so I couldn't agree more with you and the people you're citing. We are dealing with a project that is doomed to failure when we are dealing with the centralizers. There is a, there's a great example, and I can't remember which book it's from, but it was like the summer of 1958 or something. I think it was that. The U-2, uh, the U-2 spy plane, the fuel that it used also used like a main ingredient found in a insect repellent. And so like... The summer of 58 or 59, when we really started to increase the flights, you know, leading up to the Francis Gary power shoot down, the overwhelming use of that fuel, which was classified, 
So it's not like the government came out and was like, hey, we're using this special fuel. And it just, people just noticed there was an absence of insect repellent like that summer. So, you know, going camping and shit, you know, all the Norman Rockwell paintings, they just didn't have, I guess, in 1958, that summer, they just didn't have enough bug spray. But there was like, there was like, there's like this analysis that like within a year, the next year, the market had responded to where they'd come up with new repellents. And then in the Soviet system, when they started, I guess, making an analog plane or an anal whatever using the same fuel there was a, like there was a dip in like mosquito repellent for like two decades or something and the entire idea is it seems to be the the paradox of like the less you control it seems to fill in the gaps around itself versus a top-down system like you said it's not that you didn't look at it and not consider it it's you're, you're going toe to toe with another superpower. You're developing a yeah. plane that can fly high enough and stealthy enough. Who, who in a million lifetimes could have guessed it meant that your kids were going to get more bug bites that summer. It yeah. Completely. You can't even, it's a problem that only a supercomputer could enjoy. Well, you know, so what we're pointing to here is that we know that centralized systems don't work and why, so the conversation should be over, but it's not. It's alive and well in the minds of all of these guys running around, shooting their mouths off about One Health and pandemic preparedness. I asked a question the other night of a, a, a guy who's spent some time in, those, in the corridors of power at the World Health Organization. You know, why? What elements of uh, public health really truly need to be um, addressed at a global level and, you know, what, what benefits flow from addressing things at a global level as opposed to at a regional or local level. And the only thing you could come up with were procurement efficiencies, that if we needed, a, a, you know, a, some kind of therapy at short order and you were dealing with large multinational pharmaceutical firms, you needed a large multinational organization to put purchasing power pressure on them. Um, it's a bit laughable given the extent to which those very same pharmaceutical firms control the World Health Organization and have it marching to their tune. But I know from business that the idea of purchasing power as a motive for mergers and acquisitions, for example, is a very frail one. You get most of your benefits in the very first few yards of growth, the incremental benefits from growing truly massive when it comes to, to, to buying power in the market and being able to secure greater discounts are, are quite low. Um, you know, very early on uh, in the development of industries, the, 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 the returns on capital fall to... Uh, levels that are very close to cost of capital. And so if you try to put much more pressure on price, people stop selling to you. And so you get this kind of asymptotic boundary where it doesn't matter how large you grow, you're not going to be able to procure the product below the market rate. Um, and the inefficiencies that come with increasing the scale of your organization, the bureaucracy, the uh, lack of line of sight, the perversion of incentives, the capture of the organization as part of the principal agency problem that develops. All of those work in the opposite direction. And so long before you get to the level of multinational, uh, you are not 
in a position where you are benefiting from increases in scale. Um, the reason we see large multinational corporations is they do criminal things. They corner markets and monopolize them. They breach antitrust legislation. And it's been, in my opinion, it's been largely a failure to um, embrace and, and drive home antitrust legislation and antitrust concepts that has been responsible for the situation that we're in now. And it's been a problem for decades. It was a long time ago when the European Union gave Microsoft and Bill Gates a real grilling and a hard time over their monopolistic practices. The ethos of adhering to that kind of uh, aggressive response to overweening hierarchical dominance has faded. So when we talk about the failure of the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization, what is it exactly that is failing, right? Because we're kind of talking to these like abstract ideas of, of centralization can never succeed and that it's kind of the free-flowing organic nature of, of autonomous markets will thrive. And that's all well and good. But, and maybe it's diving more into conspiracy, which I always, you know, have a soft spot for. But what is it that is failing? Is it, is it as simple as a money grab? Is it as Orwellian as uh, global digital ID, controlling the movement of people, stripping away civil liberties? Is it as evil as depopulation? Or is it as, is it as benign as, I mean, really just back to the first point was just a money grab? What, what is the centralized thing that is failing? We've, we've, we've fleshed out now why it is failing, but what is the thing that is failing? If, if well, well, I'd, I'd say let's not confuse motives and dreams okay. with the thing itself. The okay. thing is centralized. Okay. okay. And then there's, there's a diversity of motives. Okay. Some people are in, in on it for the money. Some are in it for power Nietzsche or whatever yeah. reasons, the, the, the drive to power and control. So I would go with all of the above when it comes to the reasons, the motives, but let's just stop and make the observation. We are dealing with a bank of international settlements, a world economic forum, the world health organizations, one health policy, the sustainable development goals, and all these nutty, nutty, um, World, manage the world by spreadsheet uh, capers. So then if, if every time this kind of centralized government or control over a, a patch of land and group of people, be it Russia or China or wherever, I mean, in the 20th century alone was responsible for what, 120 million deaths? So it seems that the attempt always results in just wanton slaughter of man. That's yeah, just, that seems to be a pattern. Yeah, and uh, we we seem to have a sickness in society or in culture that we we end up with our universities and schools being dominated by people who are sympathetic to this line of reasoning. Um, Do you, something goes wrong. There's a. Uh, it could be that the energetic people, the generative people, the creative people. Uh, tend not to be found in these bureaucratic organizations. And so they don't pay any attention to what goes on in them. And the uh, less imaginative and more 
compliant uh, people, people who are maybe a little more convinced of their own genius than they should be because they've never been tested in the real world, um, are the ones who buttress these ideas and and give them renewed vigor when all they deserve is an early death. It, it seems maybe we're getting in too far over our heads. That was a great line. All they deserve is an early death. And maybe we're getting in too far over our heads, but maybe it's as systems develop and you have the ability to have when you're not out, you know, killing a tiger or, or foraging, maybe when you get so far removed that, you know, like, so I'm, I'm just imagining some like, you know, imperialist, like great Britain, just like fat cat merchant or something like maybe the more removed you get from it, you can start to look at it in these absurd terms of how things should be. And you can put it all on a grid and say, this is how it's going to play out. And this is our return. And, you know, from each according to his ability and to each according to their need, you can start to kind of look at it in these, these romantic ideals of, of, of how things, of how, I worked at a bar in college and I remember like the owner, not even the guy that managed it, but the owner who owned like several bars throughout Georgia talked about how there was like, there was like a correct way to go about dealing with like, uh, a patron most of the time like a college-aged male who's too drunk and it's like well first you should you know you approach from here and the second thing is is like you don't you don't get, you don't grab all around them you don't you don't crowd them all the security guys you don't crowd them third of all you suggest this and then you do, and it was all this picture perfect plan on how to diffuse a situation but i worked there and i was like dude it's 3 a.m on a thursday it's a 21 year old frat guy who's drunk out of his mind and he's like grabbing ass. There is no good way to remove him. Like he gets punched or someone else gets punched. And it's just what it is. And like yeah. you can have this beautiful idea of how to diffuse the situation. No, like the guy just has to be removed. And it's not a coincidence that the guy is removed in the same manner in different bars on different dates by different employees. It, maybe that's just the pattern. That's just what happens. Right. A drunk asshole gets thrown out, a girl cries, and then everything settles down after five minutes and you're good. <laughs> could it be that, that this is just a natural, not that you have the answer, but like, could it just be that this is a natural pattern of man? Like, why do we keep going back to this? Like, maybe just as you get higher and higher up in the ivory tower, you get more and more detached and deeper and deeper in the bureaucracy. You just start to look at things. And this isn't to you know let them off the hook, but you just start to look at things as a spreadsheet that can be drawn out on a map and solved versus like actually being there at the bar at two in the morning and dealing with the drunk asshole. Yeah. I like the question. Any, I don't um, know if that makes any sense. No, it, it does. Um, I like the question and, and let me propose a way to think about it. All right. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have a world of complete atomization where hierarchies for whatever reason don't form and where there is no social organization. There's no sacrifice of individual liberties for, in, for the sake of a community, a family, any kind of even very local, very small uh, plurality. So sorry. I always plur, battle plur, with that word. Plur, plur, um, I can't say it either. Yeah. Um, and we know just by observing um, 
how how humanity has developed and how it's not just humans, how mammals and all sorts of organisms have developed, that there's there's benefit that stems from uh, subordinating the rights of the, of the individuals to a group. And um, so that that atomized, anarchic, unhierarchical world where everybody's just doing exactly what they as individuals prefer at any point in time and they're not communicating and, and, and uh, cooperating um, would be also not much of a world to live in. So then we can see a major issue in the negotiation of uh, humanity with reality as revolving around finding the right balance of allowing hierarchies to develop, allowing um, at some level those individual rights to be um, suppressed um, in order for the benefits of sociability, social organization to come forth. And you can say, the, you know, the libertarians all get up with this silly argument that, oh, but, but you know, you're free to leave. It's voluntary. Your compliance is voluntary. Well, no, it isn't. You know, the, 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 the societies develop all sorts of mechanisms to make it uh, somewhat involuntary. To, to, we, we have social pressure um, and kind of ostracization and so on. They all present costs to the individual for not going along with the local crowd, at least. And so let's, let's, let's play with this. We're, we're as, as humans, as human societies, we're, un, under, we're underway with the project of negotiating with reality in this domain of how centralized our organization should be. And one can easily conceive of a setting where there's a bit of a wave function going on, an ebb and flow, as we experiment with different formats for um, conducting our, our cultural lives. And we err on both sides of the, the happy optimum. And that happy optimum is probably moving all over the place in response to any number of changing circumstances, technological, um, uh, environmental, uh, all, all sorts of types of generation of new knowledge might impinge upon the former optimum leading to a new one, which causes a new gyration in the system. You, can, you, could get, you could wax lyrical about the potential of such a system to swing and veer around and produce very suboptimal answers from time to time, either situations of uh, atomization or situations of hierarchical ossification. How's that? You're a goddamn wordsmith. But I see what you're getting at. It's like moving out west or something in the 1800s. It really is just kind of like, go wing it. You know, bring a gun, bring your horse. Whatever happens, happens, right? But then you maybe look at something like World War II. And let's look at the uh, 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 
Bill Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, was the first head of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. He was a World War One veteran, like close friends with FDR and Dwight Eisenhower, and he was vehemently opposed to the draft until mm-hmm. he went and toured on on order of FDR, went and toured like Britain and France like 1940, 1941, to kind of like look at the situation. And he came back and changed his mind and said, like, there is a need for a draft. And he looked at it as a direct impingement on like, I might be butchering it, but like on the rights of individuals, like why should Billy from Louisville have to be drafted against his will, put on a Liberty ship, you know, sailed across the ocean and stormed the beaches of Normandy and potentially most likely be ripped apart by machine gun fire. Yeah. And on that hand, I don't think any of us really question the the benefit of of the allies doing whatever it took, right, to beat the Nazis, to beat the Imperial Japanese. That's wildly different from a century prior when it was just going and settling out west. And and then even after World War II in the 60s. Like no, you, you could grow your hair long and take acid and go watch Jimi Hendrix. There wasn't like an impending Nazi threat. And there is, yeah, like you said, there is this this moving sweet spot, which and then if you want to get like really meta and zoom out and look at the moving sweet spot, it might not be that it can ever be pinned down. It might be a process in itself. There is no day of the year that the earth is at its best. Like what we view as a cold, barren, tundra winter day is just as essential to the spring, which is just as essential to the hundred degree days and everything's lush and green and there's enough pollen to make your head explode. But from the earth's point of view, there's no good day or bad day. And then that's within a year. You zoom out even more and there's ice ages and then there's not ice ages. The whole thing is moving and it's a, it's a very process. You can never pinpoint one spot and go, there it is. You can't, you can't, take one second i'm sure some asshole could but you can't take one second of a song and go there's the best part no it's this whole thing so it might be that and there's really kind of a blanket statement with no real meaning behind it but you could say that it's like a very process that we're just kind of witnessing like we approach communism and then we approach just full-on like anarchism and back and forth and right now what we're witnessing is just a momentary slice in time as we are pushing against the node moving towards centralization, which is kind of yeah, like, and I think yeah, a, a lot of what you're saying goes to this point about you know the circumstances varying, um, making the optimum move around. So it, it, let's take an extreme case: if there's an asteroid that's picked up that's hurtling towards the Earth, then one can imagine that a, a, a reasonable degree of centralization would be called for and we'd yeah. need to really pull together to mount an expensive project to blow the thing up and whatever. Um, but <clears throat> I think where the, the thought project has gone wrong in pandemic preparedness and the whole idea of zoonosis and you know the emergence of a viral threat from the animal kingdom and so on, is, is that they're, they're, they're focusing on completely the wrong area. Viruses have been with us since the dawn of time. They've occupied every conceivable evolutionary niche. Um, our, we, we co-evolved with them. Our immune systems are well-tuned to dealing with whatever threats they 
present or have presented throughout our evolution, and indeed not just our own, but the the evolution of all our ancestral uh, mammals and perhaps even organisms that predated mammals. You know, we've been sitting in this interplay between viral threats and viral commensuals and our own systems and navigating that since the dawn of time. So the idea that lurking out there is a whole host of potential pathogens in a bat cave or a pangolin den, um, that seems to me to be rather the wrong place to be focusing one's efforts if one is uh, hell-bent on spending time contemplating existential threats to humanity. Uh, if, if, if I was looking for an existential threat to humanity, I'd be much more concerned with cultural phenomena, things that are new. And I wouldn't even go to the world of AI or any of these ideas which are also held out to be existential threats. I would look more at the emergence of novel cultural memes because cultures evolve or have the potential to evolve very quickly. We see how quickly memes emerge, for example, and how something that hadn't, was only thought about last week is suddenly spread around yeah. the world. Um, I, I would imagine that these memes are far more dangerous than viruses or, or potentially far more dangerous than viruses, that they might have unintended consequences on quite a dramatic scale. So to me, if you look for existential threat, you go to culture, not to biology and not to uh, the world of digital computers. On the meme note, do you know the CIA, or I don't know if they still have it, they actually used to have, I mean, when I say used, I mean like the last 10 years, they had a memetic division, you know, to understand the use of memes. I mean, mean, right, you could say corporations have maybe tried to hijack memes, just the, you know, the the poster, the inspirational poster on the wall where it's like an eagle and it just says like soar to new heights and it's just supposed to be there so you don't jump out of the window at a cubicle job. There is something that I like about memes that I think I would disagree with you on, on their danger. Well, no, maybe dangerous. I got to, I got earlier this year, I got to interview Roseanne Barr for like 20 minutes. Ah. And yeah, she's really cool. She's so much cooler than me. It doesn't need to be said. But she did say something beautiful about how humor really does it's one of the only it's one of the best truth serums in that we we, there's a constantly talk about oscillation there's a constantly changing and shifting right stance to have right what was okay to say two years ago if you say it now will get you thrown out of wherever you work it'll be politically incorrect you can't say that you use the wrong gender yet whatever And so it's not real in the sense that you don't have an instinctual, like, I don't have to think about gravity. Gravity doesn't go, wait, which way am I going again? No, it just, it just pulls down. It's just what it is. But when it's something's not real, right, it's like getting caught in a bunch of lies and you have to, Mm -hmm. well, what did I say to that person? What did I have to say to that, that person? Then there's like the Winnie the Pooh quote that you never have to remember anything if you just tell the truth. So when you're constantly patching together this real-time shifting mosaic of who I should be and who I shouldn't be using this gender, and I have this stance on Ukraine, and this is what I think of, on and on and on and on, that's great. 
Not really. But it's not real. She said that with humor, humor is kind of like when the doctor like taps you on the knee and your leg kicks up. It's involuntary. It just is. And she said there's really no greater purveyor of truth than she said if you just create the funniest fucking thing. She goes, even the most politically correct White House official couldn't help but laugh. Yeah. They might they might very quickly you know utter laugh at that, but you know they're by they're, they're at home and they see a meme about Trump. I'm sure even Biden would you know like crack a chuckle. And so with that, when I look at memes, the true viral memes, not the ones that are astroturfed, <clears throat> there does seem to be something about them that is so like you can't force it to go viral. It's just a funny meme, and it just takes off. And, it's just, and like you said, no one knew it existed a week ago. And then it truly, it goes over the planet like a time lapse of a virus. But if it is that true, I mean, could it be that bad? And maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe that's how an alien entity would, would hijack our collective consciousness, would just be make the funniest meme ever. But I don't know. There's something about it that I'm like, if it's that, if it's that, if it has that much of like a wildfire nature, it doesn't seem well, like it could be hijacked. That's just my own two cents. Okay, so let me let me give you a, a, a way to think about that. You, you know, the sort of saying is the la- the, the last laughs on you. You know, yeah. Um, <clears throat> any joke taken seriously enough, any joke that travels far, it, it could could also it's also a meme landing in a complex soup of um, cultural attributes, uh, complex system. And we don't know what its consequences are. Maybe that spectacularly successful joke that, that reaches to all ends of the earth, crossing cultural boundaries and you know, all sorts of layers of wealth and across genders and whatever. Maybe that joke causes a subtle shift in the mental posture of enough people. And that shift has some kind of pernicious consequence you know, we don't know. Okay. And and so it it's a it's a reason to be scared of these things. I mean, the the one that I've I raise quite often in uh in in interviews is how quickly the meme of I identify as <laughs> has been accepted. And I I I really I really object to the fact that I haven't heard anybody else really making this criticism, but because my, my criticism of the notion I identify as is that it is fundamentally illogical. This, this thing fails regardless of what follows the word as. It doesn't matter if it's man, I identify as a man, or I identify as an attack helicopter, or I, I identify as uh, Inuit or something. It does, whatever follows the word as is irrelevant because the, the structure of the, the proposition is, is fundamentally wrong. We don't know what it's like to be an entity that we aren't. Hmm. And so to claim that you identify, you consider yourself to be or to be equivalent to, you affirm your identity as this thing that you aren't, is to say something completely bananas. You're deluded if you start that a sentence with, I identify as those three little words, this meme. Everybody gets all 
uh, tied up with the stuff that comes after the word as. They all go, oh, but you know, that, that then, then they're going to be gender, bath- gender neutral bathrooms and they're going to be people on the swimming team and whatever. But they, must, they should actually just stop and say, nope, uh, let me just catch you there. You, you, I don't know what you're about to say, but whatever it is, it's foolish. The comedian. And yet, yet the meme is gone. It's completely gone. It, it, this is widely accepted in discourse. The structure that I identify as is an acceptable thing to say. It's gone all around the world, or at least the Western world. I'm not just not too sure how far you go with it in in Mongolia or um, yeah, Saudi Arabia or something like that. I'm not too sure that they give you the time of day if you started saying I identify as. But um, <clears throat> certainly in the West, this little meme has ricocheted everywhere. And I think it has pernicious effects. I think it's causing great confusion amongst a huge number of young people uh, in particular. But uh, with the, the definition of young being <laughs> fairly generously interpreted. Um, so there's a bad meme, you know. Um, yeah. And it's not very humorous. Is uh, In fact, it's uh, people who identify as anything tend to be dour, humorless, horribly, horribly gray yeah. <laughs> individuals. Yeah. But, but you can imagine a comedic concept being being the same, being accepted without too much thought, being chuckled at and and uh, causing guffaws in, in in all manner of places, but having some kind of essential logical flaw or uh, or just an unforeseen consequence on society. So that's the problem with memes. They don't get tested slowly enough. They can they can really sprout fast. They're not safe and, and effective. Uh, Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Touche. I was going to say two, two comments on that, which are agreeing with you and are disagreeing with my prior statement that they're not bad. The first is Tim Dillon. He's a comedian. I, I love him. And uh, in 2016, and, and he's a super liberal guy, but in 2016, he was talking about, he's like all the Hollywood types freaking out because Jimmy Fallon had Trump on saying you're normalizing him. It was like after the election, he goes, it doesn't need to be normalized. It just is. He is the president. It, it doesn't matter if it's normalized. You don't have that control over it. It just is. You guys like you guys didn't vote on the sun rising tomorrow. Oh, the sun rises and we all accept it and we normalize it. No, it just it is. It cares not for you. So on one hand, yeah, I, I see that. Yeah, we're we're concerned with what comes after as, and it's like no, that 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 preface itself is just batshit yeah. insane. But yeah. I like what he did there. I like the movie pulled there. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You don't need to normalize it. But to go back to what you were saying about playing devil's advocate against myself is that it could have destructive effects as you slowly normalize memes that rationalize irrationality that we accept. I identify as I was playing. A, I was playing a video game last night, and you're like this fighter pilot. And you're fighting these two enemies and they're brother and sister. And you can kill one or kill the other. It doesn't matter. You have to kill both, but you can kill them in different orders. And if you kill the, if you kill the girl first, the, the brother gets really mad and you know, tries to kill you and then you kill him and it's whatever. But if you kill the brother first, the girl starts freaking out and saying, I can't do anything on my own without my brother. And here I am unconsciously thinking like, man, they're really trying to imply that like women can't do anything on their and I had to pause and I was like, motherfucker, like they've gotten in my head too. <laughs> that I just look at some like not 
uh, the not important fictional video game and without even thinking about it i went oh they're 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 assuming gender norms so no i do agree if you flood enough of these of these memes into society you kind of slowly detach the world from a rational basis of I mean, is that not the is that not the 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 old Soviet way of of power of hyper normalization? Like, one thing they would do is they'd create they they still do in Russia is they'll create political groups, they'll openly say this is a fake political group funded by the government. But the fact that they exist makes you start questioning other political groups. Like, why would this one be? And the the whole idea is you kick up enough dust that there is no place for. The, the roots of rationality to, to take hold. And so they can move in the chaos, whereas you're trying to find which way is up and which way. I mean, right now, I'm lucky that I'm my own boss. I do this podcast for a living. I can't imagine going to a job interview in 2022. I would be so scared shitless if I walked in and the, the woman interviewing me had blue hair. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know what I would just walk. I would walk in and I'd say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gay fox communist. Like, I wouldn't know what to do. I would freak out. I mean, I'm a white guy with blue eyes. I would freak out. But yeah, if you were to sow enough of these memes about I identify, I'm I'm in a attack helicopter. I have 97 genders. No, but really. And then you advance this by 10, 20, 30 years. And now you have a new generation coming up within it. And to them, it's not a meme. You and I laugh about it, but they grow up and they're like, what do you mean? It's just no, I identify as this. You kick up enough dust, if you're a political operator or some Machiavellian chess move maker like Klaus Schwab, when the whole world is just detached in this cloud of absurdity of what is and what isn't acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, no, memes are dangerous. I, are they, I changed are they my position. Step? You are correct. <clears throat> are they are they one step? I mean, when you're this irrational, are they one step away from identifying Schwabicidal as a gender? You know, yeah. Um, why not? Yeah. You know, <laughs> what exactly in the logical framework that they're working with would prevent them or prevent somebody from making such a move? And what would the consequences be? But there, there are two things I wanted to pick up on. I wanted to go back to your story about humor because I realize in in the mimetic discussion, I, um, I I I failed to pick up on my fundamental agreement with the assertion that humor is powerful, and we do need to laugh hard. I mean, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican in America, in America I, I would have a hard time taking you seriously if you took either of Trump and Biden seriously. These are both comical characters. Yeah, absolutely. There's not, there's not a lot of depth and gravity to either of these individuals. Neither of them should have had a hope in hell of becoming a U.S. president. Neither of them. They're both comical characters. Let's laugh. Let's laugh at Tedros. Let's laugh at Gates. Let's laugh at Schwab. You know, all of them need, we need to find the, that, that vein of humor. So I'm very much in favor of Miss um, Barr's uh, uh, characterization of humor as being very powerful. That's correct. But then you went on to talk about rationality. And I, I think it, it, it's an interesting word because, <clears throat> you know, it, it, this is about having reason. Um, you can always tell a just-so story for the evolution of a, of a complex system. And we, we have a strong desire to, to explain 
what it was that when something worked out well, what, what particular stroke of genius it was of ours that brought the situation about. But it's almost as if <clears throat> it's more a question of creativity playing out and we try a variety of things and then, oh, wow, that worked, you know. <laughs> That's the reality. Um, and then you go and stitch together a reason. It's a post hoc rationalization. And so I, it, 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 that construct that I've just given you is a, is a very difficult one for me because I, I like people who think and who reason their way through things, um, who consider and turn things over, who are skeptical, who don't get carried away. And so when confronted with a theory or an explanation for how the world works, they go, mm, but what about this? You know, uh, rather than just going along with every just so story that they're told. And that puts reason or, or rationality into a very strange light because it's the thing that you're using to prick the bubble of the, the, the sort of um, grand idea somebody else's grand idea. But it's the thing that the person with the grand idea is trying to use as well when he comes up with his spreadsheet, you know. So it, it's, a, it's a strange relation. I, I guess I prefer uh, deductive and inferential logic to be used um, to bring down explanations and deny that they ever have a role in creating the explanations in the first place, that, that that's more uh, an act of creativity and generativity, which we find difficult to articulate in algorithmic terms. So even that is sort of the, the oscillating wave <laughs> of using like chaotic in the moment creativity and then trying to break it down with rationality. And then when you get too rational, you start making shit up again. And then once yeah. you've had enough of the making shit up, you start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't retroactively break apart why something was funny because the very situation that it arose in is also what made it funny. And that mm. situation doesn't exist. Any like Seinfeld might not be a success today. Yeah. Like, like 1970 star Wars might not take off. Babe Ruth might not have been as entertaining to watch today. And to try to break it down yeah. doesn't always mean that you can repeat it now. No, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I, I also want to, I want to try and uh, be devil's advocate to myself because I think even the task of criticizing an explanation or a theory um, is itself a creative process. Absolutely. You got You have to come up with a reason against that, which you just said there was nothing you could yeah. argue with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you say to somebody, oh, well, did you think about this? Your mind has made a leap. You've gone into a domain. And, and very often the answer would be, it will be, oh, no, I hadn't. I, I, I didn't think of, think of it that way. Um, you know, so you, you might abstract from an entirely different domain of knowledge to find the objection that satisfies the niggle at the back of your mind. That's not a rational process. That's, again, a creative process. And so, yeah, it, it's, there's, there's mystery and intrigue in all of this. It's, it, it's a, the theory of knowledge uh, pricks my curiosity like no other field. It, it's so interesting to me to try and capture the essence of what knowledge is and how we get ahead in the world, how we, how we do things to encourage the flourishing society as opposed to the decadent one.
I think being the devil's advocate to one own to oneself, not even to someone else, but to yourself, I think that's and obviously I'm biased because I love doing it, but I think it's like the greatest challenge in critical thinking. And I always do it. For one, it keeps you it 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 prevents you from taking things too seriously, right? But it's also it's wildly fun. It's fun to sit there and make a statement that you believe in, like, Nick, I don't think memes are bad. And let me, you know, cite my interview with Roseanne Barr and then immediately yeah. try to jump on the other side of it. Not five minutes later and go, fuck it. Let's now let's now unpack why memes are indeed dangerous. To me, there's nothing more fun than to make an argument. And then once you've made it go, all right, now pick it apart. Not even someone else's pick your own argument apart. And you're like, okay, uh, why are memes bad? They destabilize the world and they move us away from rationale. And then in that sort of dance, you can go, well, that is what the Soviets did. And then, but now you have both explanations and you're looking at it from 360 degrees and you understand it much better now. I think it's the most fun thing in the world. Absolutely. I mean, it just strikes me that in, in, in this last hour of ours, um, I've had a dozen thoughts and said uh, a handful of things that I've probably never said before or never thought before. And that's great. That comes from this exercise of being in a place where we know that we, we have unwritten rules going into this conversation. You can say something that's, that I think is wrong and I, I, I will object and you're not going to get un, un, uh, all flustered about it and throw a hissy fit. And you can tell me that, the same thing, you know, that you that I'm that I, I maybe um, one of your other uh, guests has has put something better or, or or hasn't has a better has a richer perspective on it. That's wonderful for me, you know. That's great. I'm I'm just going to go. Oh, okay, change my mind. Yeah. Um, and and that environment is the very environment that is the stuff of creativity. And it's the opposite of the environment of cancel culture and and smearing and. Uh, censorship and the whole notion of misinformation and disinformation. These guys are boring, right? They are just so boring. I mean, really? That this does kind of wrap up nicely into our our initial thesis. Chaotic, unplanned, unscheduled has birthed. I've never thought about why memes are bad until now. We didn't plan on this an hour ago or yeah. why they could be better, why they're good or who knows, maybe Roseanne Barr is right. Maybe she's wrong, but that itself can only come from right beforehand. Uh, Mr. Hudson, we're going to talk about memes and then we're going to, we're going to talk about, it. no, we didn't fucking do that. I literally just messaged you last night and said, Hey, m- bring wine. That was it. That was the preparation <laughs> yeah. for this. That was it. Yeah. It's just, and it runs that course. And I was going to say, I mean, and you could compare it to, you know, I, the only interviews I ever do are my own. So I wouldn't know, but you do tons of interviews. How would you say this one compares? I don't mean this specific one, but I mean, you coming on here and you don't have to kiss my ass, but I mean, let's just like put it, put it to, put it to test. Which one leads to more creative thoughts, like sitting in your home with a glass of wine, being able to say whatever the hell you want. Or having to go to a newsroom studio in a suit and tie and smile and shake and why are we at 15 minutes then we got to go to ad breaks right i mean i would imagine you can be a little more creative yeah and there's no boundaries 
but but you were you, you probably detected my Churchillian leanings in this regard, and that was why you asked me to have the glass of wine in the first place. I, I'm very much a believer in the uh, in the virtues of of uh, of you know in, in vino veritas. Well, that, actually, that, actually, this was a this was kind of a meta test of my own decentralization. I've drank on maybe like three or four podcasts I've ever done. Yeah. I normally don't like doing it because I like to be super sharp and on point. But Thursday afternoons are the last podcast I do of the week. And I remember the last time you had a glass of wine. So I was literally just thinking last night, I was like, why don't I dip my toes in? Why don't I have a drink with you during this podcast? Like, I didn't want to do it. I don't like drinking on the podcast. I feel like I'm going to make a fool of myself. But I kind of dipped my toes in and we're like, let's see what happens. Let's play devil's advocate. If you're going to do 840 episodes sober, why not throw in one with just have a beer? You don't have to get wild. And it turned out to be a I mean, fucking great podcast. It, it's interesting because it, it's not as if either of us are drunk. I mean, I've had uh, just just a glass of wine had, in the space of an hour. This is ice with like hard seltzer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's not even, it's barely alcoholic. Um, so, it, but it's just the thing that shifts the tone and uh, yeah. uh, makes you more contemplative. Yeah. Contemplative. It's one of those words. That even that's. Even that's the sinusoidal wave, though, right? Because if we sat here and had five more drinks, our creative nature would probably no. go away. You know, it would just be stupid. And we'd yeah. even there is that, is that just sweet spot. Just have a little bit. And, and we'd both be glad in the morning that it was a recorded conversation. We could cut the last hour and a half out. There's actually, <laughs> yeah. an, there's actually an episode called The Lost Episode that I did <laughs> with two of my buddies last summer. Yeah. We got so fucked up. I couldn't upload yeah. it. I couldn't. I went back and looked at it the next day. I was like, I was like, this is. I mean, this might get me in trouble legally. <laughs> so, you, you, and, and at the time, you thought you were geniuses. Oh, we thought we were. I mean, yeah. forget Einstein. We're solving the problems of the. Look at it the next morning. You're like, this is crass. It's hateful. It's emotional. It makes no sense. We're farting and burping. Like it's. Just, it was terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> but. You know, there is a case of going too far, but um, it yeah, it's fine. It, 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 it's gonna it's gonna stop you from drinking too much next time you're on a date. Yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> or not, or I just be like, I don't know. This could be another lost episode. But Mister, um, I said I'd let man. you go. Out. Well, I'd well, say I'd let well, you go. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure talking, and um, I didn't greet your listeners. I should should do that. Thank you. Oh yeah, and then whatever they don't, they don't care. It's I said I'd let you go at an hour, and it's exactly an hour. And um, yeah, the third straight episode. I don't think we've tackled Panda, so maybe <laughs> maybe we'll get to it the fourth time. But uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, man. I enjoy playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I've, I've always fun. enjoyed our conversations, Tommy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, I'll send you this when it's up. It should be up in like an hour or two. I know it's late. Oh, okay. Time, so um, yeah. but yeah, it'll be up immediately. We'll uh, we'll definitely do another. And uh, make sure to have a drink next time. And um, yeah, man, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Much love, brother. Cheers.